0: tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. All this week, we've been hearing how the Visitors Bureau on Kauai and Hawaii Island have been working to try and manage the tourist numbers as we recover from the pandemic shutdown. Today, we hear from Maui. Summer crowds have long suffered through the long lines at the airport and transportation officials have said they are working to solve the bottleneck of processing and they're expected to announce a plan for some relief in the next two weeks. Today, we hear from Megan Degaya, destination manager for Maui Visitors Bureau, about some of the progress that it's made to date in other areas. It includes reef-safe sunscreen dispensers at beach parks and ambassadors to manage traffic on the road to Hana.
1: Maui continues to be very busy. And we'll probably see this busyness through the end of the year. And on average, we're seeing about sixty thousand visitors a day on any given day here on the island. And as we start to see other destinations open up, we expect that Hawaii visitor counts will start to soften a little bit. And the destination management action plan for Maui Nui, Maui, Lena'i, and Molokai were really catalyzed, just like the other DMAP statewide, by the Hawaii Tourism Authority as a big push to redirect, redefine, and reset the direction of tourism. And the HTA convened multiple agencies and organizations and community members to be part of steering committees to identify actions and sub actions within the DMAP, the destination management action plan for each island. And so we're really now working as destination managers, as the visitors bureau and across the sectors with community organizations and with industry to fulfill these actions and sub actions within the destination management action plan and bring them to life and there are Many actions, many great actions that the community has identified that they'd like to see to bring regenerative tourism as the the focus of the visitor industry here on the island. And I encourage everybody to find the DMAP for your island on the HTA website for Maui Nui. You can also Google destination management action plan Maui Nui, and it'll come right up. One thing that we're hoping to get permitting for are to install 20 mineral-only sunscreen dispensers for free public use on beaches here, majority of which being on the island of Maui and one being on the island of Lanai, and so this is really beautifully represents the regenerative nature of the DMAP, which in this sense is calling us to protect the health of ocean and freshwater, land-based ecosystems and biosecurity. And so these mineral-only sunscreen dispensers will be for free public use, so they'll benefit Kamaaina, Molokini, or visitors, and of course the Aina or life. Also, we're working to convene an East Maui tourism management pilot program. And so we've been in discussions with the community in East Maui for about a year now. And we've heard that they're wanting ambassadors, visitor information personnel at four major hotspots to start. The ones that we're looking at are Maui Marker 10, Waikamoi Waterfalls, also Kaihalulu Waioka and South Wailua waterfalls, as well. So, all along the road to Hana and East Maui. And what this would look like is two um, ambassadors at each of the different locations providing orientations that the community comes up with about parking, appropriate behavior, safety, trespassing, and all of this is really to address the four major issues that we're seeing out in East Maui, including illegal parking, including trespassing, unlicensed commercial activity, and an overall need for visitor education. And so what we're doing to start to lay the groundwork to bring this pilot program to life is convening an East Maui advisory group. So just like we've been doing on the island of Lanai and Moloka'i, where we pull together uh, additional residents from the community for these advisory groups who are doing that in East Maui as well. That way we can have messaging to visitors for Hana, by Hana residents, and similarly the residents from each MOKU in East Maui can come together and you know work on the scripts that the ambassadors at these different hotspots will be providing to visitors can discuss the ins and outs and just make sure that this pilot program is something that the community wants and supports. And it's, we just really recognize the necessity of bringing relief to the community out there with the overcrowded nature of the Rodjahana.
0: That's a great idea. Basically you know like hi my name's Catherine I'll be your host for the evening (laughs) and kind of walk them through what you're gonna see what's on the menu do's and don'ts and just
1: to really stress that you're a guest here and please be respectful absolutely yeah so these folks these employees will be stationed at the different hotspots and providing orientations of you know human touch personal one-on-one interaction and what we've heard from the community is that the vast majority of unfavorable behaviors that visitors might unknowingly demonstrate out there can be mitigated, can be reduced. About 96% of those behaviors can be reduced just by having a person out there providing those orientations, answering questions, providing alternative locations uh, to de- redirect people into regenerative activities instead of places where they visitors might not be welcome to go or it's inappropriate for them to go or there simply just isn't parking and can cause congestion if you know too many people kind of get built up in one area
0: right so if there's an area that's kapu that's off limits uh, you want to make sure that if there are let's say illegal tour operators trespassing uh, and, and spreading something on social media you want to be able to curb that early on
1: absolutely and of course safety is a big issue too with regard to flash flooding and just rescues that might be needed on you know steep trip parts of the trails where people might encounter injuries or hazards, and so when those rescues take place, it takes away resources from the local residents. Also, there's a recognition in East Maui that the natural places out there, like the waterfalls and along the ocean, they're, they're there for gathering. So this is such a potent time where, where we as the Visitors Bureau, with the support and leadership from the Hawaii Tourism Authority, can be connecting with these, communica- with these communities and advocating for what they need. And really uplifting and empowering uh, instilling a more natural order and balance with the visitors that we're seeing out there
0: what can you tell us about Moloka'i and Lanai because I you know Moloka'i I know I don't believe that allowing visitors yet to like say Kalapapa but what are some of the hot spots that Moloka'i is dealing with
1: so one of the great things that came out of Moloka'i's destination management action plan was so, the residents there wanted to take a more active role in implementing the DMAP, the Destination Management Action Plan. And so, this task force has organized themselves into subject matter committees, and each subject matter committee is focusing on a different sub action within their plan. So, for example, one of the things that their subject matter committees is focusing on is, again, providing messaging to visitors about appropriate, respectful travel and behavior, places that are kapu, like you mentioned places that they are welcome to go. So that's one of the things that we're working on is developing that messaging to communicate to visitors about the voluntourism activities that might be available on the islands and how they can support the local economy and small business.
0: You know, they're doing a lot of work with restoring fish ponds, you know, and I don't know if there's some, you know, integration there uh, where the visitors could learn about some of those restoration projects and and all the you know the the wonderful systems that the Native Hawaiians had in place and what what we're doing to try and bring those back.
1: What you just said came straight out of the DMAP for their island. So we're working with the local EA and the other nonprofits over there to create a needs assessment to determine you know their capacity for welcoming volunteers, and then also the Molokai Land Trust is also one of the partners in the Malama Hawaii program. And this program, Malama Hawaii, is a statewide program where visitors are encouraged to volunteer with nonprofits. And here in Maui Nui, we have 17 nonprofits in this program. And currently, the one on Molokai is the Molokai Land Trust. And so that welcomes visitors out to their Mokio Preserve for an incredible experience on that bluff it's a really incredible area, dramatic landscape, and that's the site of re, um, seabird restoration, habitat res- seabird habitat restoration, and other efforts. So visitors can learn a great deal, have an incredible day, and be able to give back.
0: Yeah, I mean, if we've got lots of endangered species, we can talk about the great need to protect our native birds and mammals and uh, and, and how they can help.
1: You're absolutely right. Also over on the island of Lina'i, we also have an advisory group over there. And so their focus with this advisory group has been rebranding the island of Lina'i. So coming up with community driven messaging. And what that revolves around for the residents, what's really at the heart of that rebrand for them, is supporting the local economy of Lina'i City. Encouraging visitors to come over for a day trip, and that includes Kama'aina visitors, which they they really welcome. Coming over for a day trip, reserving their transportation in advance, whether that be a shuttle or a taxi or an Uber, and then heading up to Lina'i City to enjoy the the, shops, the mom and pop shops, all locally, most of which are locally owned supporting the local economy, going to the E Cat Sanctuary and supporting that nonprofit, which is in the Malama Hawaii Program, and downloading their E Guide app. This is an incredible app that's been created by the E Culture and Heritage Center, and it features numerous mo'olelo, history, community-supported hikes that visitors can go on, self-guided walking tours with augmented reality tech features, and self-guided driving tours as well so it's a really rich resource for visitors whether they be you know coming from out of state or here within Hawaii to take advantage of
0: I was surprised to see uh, I think it was like the top honeymooning sites and Lanai who was the one listed from Hawaii yeah
1: I mm-hmm. think that coincides with what the community wants to see over there which mm-hmm. is a rebrand um, a messaging about their island about being relaxing and calming, peaceful, tranquil, and authentic, historic, charming, and that all kind of coincides with what a honeymooning couple might be looking for in a getaway. That was
0: Megan Degaya, destination manager for the Maui Nui Visitors Bureau. Maui residents are encouraged to look at the plan online. Uh, In-person community meetings will be held later uh, this fall. Uh, The Hawaii Tourism Authority says the uh, action plan, the report for Oahu, is expected out later this month. Senate Minority Leader Kurt Favela is calling on Governor David Ige to declare a state of emergency and halt the shutdown of the AES Hawaii Coal fired plant uh, power plant, which is set to shutter operations on September first. What's his concern? Delays in bringing large renewable energy projects online, which leaves residents on the hook for higher energy costs as the state burns more oil to account for the coal plants closure. But just what is behind those delays? The conversation Savannah harriman pope checks in on the state of our large scale solar projects.
2: Aloha. 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 Today we celebrate an important milestone. This 39 megawatt solar project along with the 156 megawatt hour battery storage system is Oahu's first utility scale solar and battery storage project. I really want to congratulate Clearway Energy Group for their commitment and investment in Hawaii. Mahalo. Congratulations to everyone involved. Governor Ige joined state officials and solar industry professionals at a ceremony for the new Mililani Solar One, a 131-acre solar plant in Kunia on Oahu. The project went live in July after nearly three years of development by the solar company Clearway Energy Group. The mood was upbeat, but folks weren't shy about just how tough going the project has been. And was there ever a point when you were working on this project where you thought, I'm not sure if we're going to be able to pull it off?
3: (laughs) Only about nine days out of 10. (laughs) Yes.
2: That's Ralph Valentino. He's been a site manager on this Mililani plant for the last year and a half. And he's easy to pick out from the crowd. While most folks opted for aloha wear, Valentino is sporting a reflective vest to go along with his no-nonsense attitude
3: we are bare bones on this job Uh, we have no more contingency left and we knew that probably eight months ago (laughs) this isn't a money maker right up front for us Um, other jobs have been but this one is is right squeaking by there's there's not a lot of money in there to go spend on a boat it was a struggle let's say that it was a struggle um 90 of that was ifs and questions as to whether we would actually get our components sent here and the transportation getting them here. And we still are struggling over on the other project to get the last couple pieces here. So it's been a, That's it's the been other, a struggle, the other Clearway,
2: Clearway has another utility stale solar and storage project in the works, Wayava Solar Power, just down the road from where we're standing. But that project will miss its deadline. And it's not alone. Nine utility scale solar and storage projects in development on Oahu have power purchase agreements with Hawaiian Electric. Seven are behind on their timelines. Recently, Clearway said that the Waiava project would be delayed by as long as eight weeks because of shipment troubles from its battery supplier in Shanghai, which faced lockdowns this summer. It's just the latest supply chain disruption to hit the solar industry over the last year.
4: I think it's been exceptional.
2: That's Josh Myers, vice president of Hawaii Energy with Moss Construction. Moss contracts with over half of the utility-scale solar projects in development on Oahu, including both of Clearway's sites. He says that while some disruption is just a part of doing business in the solar world, these last two years have been more than anyone has bargained for.
4: Before, you know, in the industry, manufacturers of different products, modules, trackers pre-harness wiring systems, everything that goes into into a solar project physically, manufacturers are constantly innovating. And when that happens, they have to make new parts and they have to get those new parts quality control checked. They have to find the fabrication plants, et cetera. That's always been an issue in solar. So it's always been challenging to really get as much predictability as you would like on components that go into a solar system. The last couple of years, With the supply chain crisis and the COVID lockdowns, was definitely exceptional, and we saw things that we, you know, on the Mililani project that I had never seen before, where you just basically can't get a component because a part of that component, right, is just unavailable, and so it forced you know redesign efforts on the fly, working with our manufacturers of these products to come up with an alternate solution and then implement that on the project, you know, in the middle of the project.
2: Myers credits the teamwork of everyone involved in the Mililani plant for weathering these setbacks and opening the plant on time. But Valentino says the process of getting solar components to Hawaii is a major headache.
3: Getting materials here in time, I don't wanna say nationwide, but it's sort of a worldwide squeeze. Everything seems to come from Asia. They can build them cheaper. And America needs to gear back up into manufacturing their own, you know, just like, just like uh, any electronic parts. Um, if, we can man- if we can manufacture our own, then, and then we're free to buy, we're in a much better position to keep rolling.
2: Rocky Mold is the executive director of the Hawaii Solar Energy Association. He says that while much of the manufacturing and assembly of solar hardware, like panels, takes place in Asia, that's changing.
5: There are significant investments occurring in the United States Uh, and in Mexico and in Canada as well. And those investments are not just in the assembling of the solar panels themselves, but also in the mining uh, and sourcing of the materials.
2: This summer, several solar developers, including Clearway, committed to spending $6 billion on U.S.-made panels in order to stoke a domestic supply chain in the coming decade.
5: There are major shifts occurring in the solar uh, manufacturing supply chains as we speak. And the Inflation Reduction Act is only going to accelerate those changes that are occurring.
6: Can you give
2: an example of specifically how the Inflation Reduction Act is going to pump up domestic manufacturing or diversify the supply chain?
5: Well, there, there are adders to the investment tax credit. There's an investment tax credit that, at a baseline, will provide... Thirty percent, a thirty percent tax credit for investments in solar uh, installations. If there's domestic-made content, that 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 tax credit goes up. Um, uh, so that so there's that. That's one thing that's for sure. You know, a direct incentive for you know pumping up domestic manufacturing and domestic capabilities. There are also significant production tax credits for not just producing energy, but for building, m- building the factories and the plants that are needed to, to build the panels. So there's a production tax credit for producing the production capability, if you will. And so that's huge. That's, like, that's kind of like an industrial policy for solar and renewable energy in the U.S. that we haven't had prior to this, that we now will have.
2: Mold is confident that our domestic solar manufacturing will have its day. And for folks on Oahu who are losing one of their largest sources of energy in just two weeks when AES's coal plant goes offline, that day can't come soon enough.
0: That was the conversation Savannah harriman Poe reporting on the transition of our energy grid on Oahu. Uh, The last day for the coal plant after 30 years is midnight, September 1st. And we're told that the uh, demolition will probably start uh, in January of next year, according to the AES Corporation.
7: Support for H.P.R. comes from C.S. & Sons in Hawaii since 1909, providing home furnishings for the islands from classic to contemporary to casual. Learn more online at cswoandsons.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello,
1: I'm Michael Mead, creator of Living Myth Podcasts and Workshops. And the next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about a rejuvenating creation myth for the times in which we live.
7: Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting cross-pollination, flowers across the collection, artworks from Homa's vaults and galleries exploring the resonance of flowers in art. On view now, HonoluluMuseum.org.
0: reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat circles back on the bribery probe at the city's Department of Planning and Permitting reporter Christina Jedra joins us
6: good morning hi Catherine. good to be here
0: yeah so DPP the beleaguered department mm-hmm. uh, yeah I mean you know we, we had a, a number of people who were indicted uh, and and so yeah where do things stand <laughs>
6: So, five DPP employees were indicted, and their cases are at various points in the criminal justice process. But, um, you know, there was only one person who actually bribed DPP that has faced charges so far. That's architect Bill Wong. Um, But for the rest of the cases, we don't really know who bribed the employees. Um, In court records, they're described in vague terms, you know, an architect or draftman. One, you know, a business owner uh, in Waipahu, you know, it's it's hard to figure out who these people are. Um, and some community members are saying, well, why the secrecy? You know, we should know who these people are and they should be held accountable. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the
0: uh, building inspector, I think, that, that admitted to, to taking these bribes, uh, I think there was one, gosh, it was close to $10,000 from a solar contractor.
6: Yeah, there are a bunch of different uh, anecdotes sort of cited in the court records. um, Thousands of dollars in bribes given over the course of years um, from businesses and individuals. And, um, you know, some people are just questioning why is it that the DPP employee is, you know, facing consequences and not the person on the other end of the transaction?
0: Well, now, uh, I I know that there was uh, that that one uh, uh, inspector uh, Jason Dadez,
6: uh, I believe, what, he's supposed to turn himself into court? He actually should be in prison by now. I think uh, he was okay. supposed to turn himself in yesterday.
0: Oh, that's right. Today is Thursday.
6: Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. And and his uh, his attorney basically
0: says, yeah, where are the other people that are being charged in this? Other architects or draftsmen? Uh,
6: It was actually Megan Cowell, the attorney for Bill Wong, uh, the architect, that was wondering that, saying, Mm -hmm. you know, why is my client the only one that's being held accountable? Um, You know, there is sort of a a legal explanation for this. I spoke with former uh, federal public defender Ali Silvert, and he said it's pretty typical for prosecutors to hold this information close, um, you know, in preparation for a trial. You don't want to out all your witnesses. You might expose them to the potential of intimidation. Um, But once it gets to the point of a plea agreement, like some of these DPP cases have, um, the names are still shielded. So in the plea agreement, they're still being described in these vague terms where you can't figure out who they are. And Silvert said, in that kind of situation, you just may never find out who they are, because they don't have to testify for a trial. There is no trial. And we've
0: had other uh, uh, public corruption cases come up with the you know state lawmakers, um, Ty Cullen, right. Kalani English,
6: right. So in that sort of case. Um you might have the person on the other end of the bribe getting charged later, and that's expected to happen in that case with Milton Choi. Um, In court records, he was described as person A, but um, there was enough identifying information in there that the media kind of figured out who he was, and his own attorney is saying he's expecting to be charged um, pretty soon, perhaps any day now. Mm -hmm. Um, But then there's other cases, like uh, there's, Lion and Associates, this was a contracting firm that a couple years ago, the head of it was busted in a major bribery scandal spanning from Hawaii to Micronesia. And we never found out who were the people in Hawaii that he bribed. Um, we don't even know which department it was that he bribed. Prosecutors never revealed that. Um, and th- it may never come out.
0: Yeah. And uh, you talked to uh, Nat- Natalie Owasa, Community Watchdog, and she's just saying, yeah, it seems like the public should know, you know, more about these cases.
6: Right, that was her opinion and, you know, she's a certified CPA, she's licensed by the state and she made a good point that when you don't find out who is engaging in this sort of wrongdoing the licensing boards can't bring accountability to those people you know when they find out about it they can bring discipline suspend a license um, yank a license permanently if it's warranted but when the information doesn't come out um, you know those people can continue working and certainly continue uh, being customers to DPP and you know I'm sure the public's just wondering okay is this it is this the end of it are we gonna
0: see more indictments Uh, but certainly yeah I think the public has a right to know who else is involved
6: Right. I I think it'll be interesting to see what else comes out. We haven't heard about any additional charges, but we'll definitely stay on the story. Okay. All right. Thanks so much, Christina. Thank you, Catherine.
0: That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. Uh, To read the full story, visit civilbeat.org. been hearing lots of stories about small businesses calling it quits. Our story today, there's one in Kailua Town. The seaside community has seen a lot of changes since Island Treasures Art Gallery opened in 1988. The boutique gallery carries the work of hundreds of local artists, but with economic speed bumps like the poly closure, the pandemic, the loss of visitor traffic, and the final straw, rising rent. it has been difficult to be profitable selling artwork on consignment. The conversation's Lillian Song sat down with uh, owner Gail Allen, who's been showcasing island talent for over three decades.
8: Kailua was a sleepy little cow town. We had a dairy and um, a hardware store, gas stations. Basically, there were very few stores there. There were boutiques. We had, oh, the Piggly Wiggly. We had just very few businesses that had opened. It wasn't the dynamic place that it is now, and it wasn't so populated. So I think anything would have taken off at that time, and we carried You know, we wanted to carry gift items so that the people from Kailua didn't have to travel over the hill to Ala Moana to go shop. They could stay in Kailua and start shopping. And that's how we started. And it took off right from the get-go. It was just a success right from the day it opened. It was just amazing. The people of Kailua have always supported us. We've been open Approximately 30, 32 years. I've lost track, actually. <laughs> it's been so long. I'm, I'm getting older in my store, growing old with my store.
2: Wow, but just, I mean, hailing back to when you first opened up across the street was... The
8: Coronet store was there, and it went out, and the building went up for sale. And, oh, I wish I would have had the money back then to buy that building, but the Salvation Army bought it, and they went in there, and we looked right at Coronet. We were across the street where the Whole Foods is right now. We've always been in Kailua town, but I actually came from Specklesville, Maui, and I had opened stores there. My best girlfriend was Debbie Costello. She lived in Kailua, and um, her and her husband wanted to open a business to help their family. They had kids at mid-pack, high education costs. And so I said, well, I'll come over, and I'll help you, and we'll open a store together. So we opened Island Treasures together. We uh, procured about 200 artists by traveling to Maui, to the Seabury Crafts Fair, to all the craft fairs on the islands. We met artists from everywhere, from Hawaii to get ni'ihau shells and koa artists. There's stained glass and all kinds of beautiful jewelry, antique feather lays and lahala hat. Most of our artists are still there. Thomas Deer is there, Gary Palm, uh, Lynn Boyer, uh Eduardo Garcia is there, Um, Heather Brown is there, I mean, I can't name all of them. There's two to three hundred artists in there.
2: What is it about art that draws you for you to open up a gallery space because it is, it's a landing ground for the talent of different various artists you help curate? Yeah,
8: I went to architectural school at UH and always had an eye for art. I'm not a painter. I'm a marketer, and I love interior spaces and design, and I think it was just a natural for me to want to meet artists. And It's like listening to music, and you're not a musician. You appreciate the music, even though you don't play guitar, right? Well, I don't paint, but yet I have good eye for art, and I really appreciate good art. has always been known as a town full of just wonderfully creative, beautiful people, like... You know, Under Hula Moon and Global Village, Picket Fence, those three stores all either sold or closed. And now we're left with the standardization of America in that every town has the same stores with the Whole Foods, the Targets, the, you know, the Walmarts. And they really are wreaking havoc because they carry a lot of the same things or they, they're just taking those dollars away from the small boutiques. And I hate to see that happen because Kailua we helped put Kailua on the map as being a boutique town just like Haleiwa or some stores in Paia and Maui. And customers really like that feel. It's a place to go have lunch together and shop really cute, creative boutique-y things that you wouldn't see in a Target or see in a a Walmart. And that's the kind of gifts you want to give, things that are just individual to your own taste. And that's what Kailua is known for. I I see that diminishing a little bit. And with these events, I think that the prices are probably a little bit higher. That's the, the negative. The positive is the people are still there and the customers are wonderful. We know all of them by name. You know, there's some tourists that come in and hopefully it'll get better and better. Maybe after this COVID is over, it'll get better and better. The economy will come back.
2: You identified one of the hardships though is rent. Well, our town sold about
8: five, six years ago to A and B. You know, they're interested in making money on their investment. And there was a, a pretty big dollar amount to buy that town. It's like buying an island. So they have to show a return on their money. And I can understand that. Rents are high. You know, they did help us out during COVID. They lowered it a little bit. And um, my lease is coming up. And, you know, they want to charge full price rent with escalation charges every year. And it's just gotten to the point where you just can't make it on these kind of margins. And so I have moved to Lanai and opened a store there. I've decided that I just am going to close it and not take the risk that I've been taking financially. I don't want to personally for the space any longer to where they could attach to my home. You know, I just don't feel like I really want to take that risk right now. Love the gallery. I love everything about the business. But, you know, it's time to let someone else have the space.
2: Because reality is, boots on the ground, is you're not getting that many feet through the door at this point. The airlift isn't back. No.
8: Our sales were off for the last almost three years now. They were off 80 to 90% per month. Wow. We just did not have the foot traffic. The tourists were not making it out there. We lost our Japanese market and the locals just were not buying expensive gifts and art and Koa, Hawaiian made things. They were, you know, saving the money and people were afraid of what was gonna happen next. They pulled their pocketbooks in and I can understand that. So it was a difficult time during COVID. Uh, We did get some help from the PPP loans to help pay our employees their salaries and to help pay our rent. But we had to survive on, you know, just hard work. It's a difficult market. You really have to be shrewd and sharp and um, always on it. And so the other dynamic that's happened in Kailua is that the housing and real estate market has changed so drastically just in the last year. Things have gone tripling, quadrupling in price to buy. So the rental market for staff, our staffing needs, you know, we pay pretty good, but um Boy, they, they, you just can't find a rental to live in. If you're a young person in Kailua, you have to live way out. So that's really changed the dynamics, too. It's very difficult to find employees. And I think everyone in, in all of the state is experiencing this. Even, you know, out of state, there's just not enough employees. And the rentals are absolutely astronomical. They're four or $5,000 a month, and these kids just can't afford it. So that's been a, a tough one, too. We've had a hard time finding employees. You know, I really... I've learned a lot um, from opening the gallery, and I, I have other stores around the islands. And I gave it everything I had, and I know that everyone appreciated it. They hate to see it go, but it's time. It's time to close. It's time to shut the doors. We've had a great. We have great sales going on right now. We have, you know, fifty percent off of everything, twenty-five to seventy-five percent off actually, and um, we're going to be closing on the thirty-first. Will be our last day of August. You know, I'm getting older. I'm in my late 60s. I live in Lanai now, and I love Lanai. It's very rural. So I have a store there called the Hula Hut. I have several businesses, and I think I have enough on my plate. But I am enjoying the fruits of my labor. I've been to Italy this summer, and now I'm up in Montana. And so I am—we're throwing a big party tomorrow, a going-away party for the community. I think there's probably going to be a couple hundred people there. A lot of artists are coming tomorrow night, too. So come in and and see the store. It's it's winding down. There's still plenty of art left. Thank you for listening to me, and thank you for all my customers. Thank you to my artists, my beautiful artists. And I really have to thank all my employees because they are just superstars, especially Ben and Susan who have helped me so much, my managers who have been there to the very end. I just love them to pieces. So I really hope you guys come visit me at the Hula Hut. And you never know. I might open another one on Lanai. I might open an art gallery on Lanai someday.
0: That was H.P.R.'s Lillian Song talking with owner Gail Allen of Island Treasures Art Gallery. Allen has lots of warm memories since she sends her aloha to everyone she's met through her gallery. And the public's invited to an oi party tomorrow night, 5 to 9 p.m. Your chance to say goodbye and catch sale prices before the shop shutters and closes permanently on August 31st.
2: Things they used to say what they say Things I never asked to take Lay it
7: down Lay it down Support for H.P.R. comes from Kumukahua Theater's comedy Aloha Las Vegas. As retiree Wally Fukuda thinks about selling his home to move to Las Vegas, his family has other ideas. Opens August 25th, kumukahua.org. Why are wages what they are? Many of us simply accept number on our paycheck because we assume that's what the market is determining. And that, I think, begs the question of why do we see so much variation across time, across place, and across firms?
8: So what's really driving that variation? We'll talk about the myths that help set wages in the modern economy. That's on the next On Point.
7: Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for H.P.R. comes from the Hawaii Island Community Health Center, a merger of Bay Clinic and West Hawaii Community Health Center, now providing comprehensive health care on Hawaii Island, hicommunityhealthcenter.org.
0: few rarities in this day and age. Female indigenous jazz singers like Julia Keefe are one of them. She's a member of the Nez Perce Indian tribe and grew up on a reservation in Idaho. After moving to Washington State, she began studying music and competing in jazz festivals. She graduated from the University of Miami in 2012, and in the time since, she's taught jazz voice classes and headline events in Washington, D.C., And even open for Grammy winners Tony Bennett and Esperanza Spaulding. Keith will be on Hawaii Island to perform at the Kahilu Theater Saturday night. The Conversations Russell Subiano got the chance to talk to her about her love for jazz and how her culture influences her art.
9: Share what life was like growing up on your tribe's reservation in Idaho?
10: So, we lived in like a tiny, tiny little lumber community town called Kamii, Idaho. We we're on the banks of the Clearwater River, which is the ancestral homeland. I mean, a small portion of the ancestral mm-hmm. homeland of, of my people, the Nez Perce people. But I moved there with my family when I was really little. I had to have been about five. So my memory of growing up on the res is just like a really happy one, you know, surrounded by all my cousins and just extended relatives. And so being part of that, that big collective, you know, family was just a huge part of my upbringing and part of my identity. And, you know, having all of my aunties sort of functioning as as mother figures and uncles as father figures. It was a a huge part of my childhood, and then it was through the encouragement of my elders, the grandmas on my res, that I actually got into singing. We were having a Martin Luther King Day celebration in Kamei, and they needed someone to sing the national anthem. And they're like, oh, you know, Julia, Julia can get up and do it. Yeah, Julia because I would sing in church on Sundays. So they're like, Oh, yeah, you know, Julia. And so that first, the very first time I sang in public was for the MLK Day celebration. And I forgot the words. I ran off stage crying. (laughs) But my elders were still so like proud and impressed with what I could do. So then they were like, Oh, well, then she should sing at the Kamii Lapway basketball game, which is like, the big basketball game on our res between Uh these like these two small towns. So I started preparing and I started practicing. I was about eight years old. I had a speech impediment. I couldn't say my R's or my L's. Mm -hmm. And there are so many R's and L's in the star spangled banner. Mm -hmm. So the video is just hilarious. But I mean, you know, growing up on the res and singing in the church and going to, you know, traditional ceremonies and everything. I mean, music was all around. And so it was only natural for me to end up going into like a life of music, pursuing it professionally.
9: And so how did you get introduced to jazz specifically?
10: So my mom, who introduced me to jazz, she had a Billie Holiday sort of greatest hits Recording and I remember it very vividly. It was this periwinkle, like large, sort of rectangle pamphlet CD case. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like the be- her best of her Verve recordings, or no Decca. It was her Decca recordings, mm-hmm. and I just remember listening to it with her as a very tiny child and falling in love with Billie Holiday's sound. Yeah. There was one song that really stayed with me throughout my childhood, even though like after moving, the Billie Holiday CD case sort of disappeared into the, you know, wherever those things go when you when you move from one house to another. But her one song called No More was like the melody that haunted me as a child, but in like the best possible way.
9: You ain't
5: gone. No more, no how
7: love goes just so.
10: The melody of No More is very unusual. It's very angular and odd. And it's about a woman who's basically saying to her former lover, you're not in charge and you're not, you have no power over me. Like, I'm not gonna worry about you anymore. I'm good. From my window, skies ain't gray, no more. And it's such a weird tune for like a four-year-old to really latch on to. But man, that was like my first musical memory was Billie Holiday singing No More. And it wasn't until, you know, after the, you know, singing at the basketball game and starting to get into voice lessons and pursuing music in a more sort of educational, structured way that I discovered Billie Holiday again in, you know, my adolescence.
9: After moving to Spokane, you began studying music and competing in jazz festivals during that period in your life. Was it ever a challenge to kind of balance your Native American identity with the pursuit of such a purely American art?
10: Yeah, absolutely. There was a a moment when I sort of like hid my Native identity because when I would say to people, I'm a Native American jazz vocalist, Mm -hmm. it was almost like it offended people or they would like challenge me on that. Like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Because being a Native artist there's sort of that like mental image that very, you know, there's a very specific mental image that people have when you say, Oh, I'm a native American musician. And there's nothing wrong with that image, but that, that image doesn't apply to the music that I do, especially during junior high and high school being a native jazz musician, it was hard for a lot of people to sort of wrap their brains around. And so on my end, I would sort of just be like, no, I'm just a jazz vocalist. Mm-hmm. I'm just a jazz musician. And, you know, yes, I'm native, but like, you know, because there was such a sort of, I don't know, like running into a wall with yeah. that and trying to appeal to other people's sensibilities or, or, you know, notions or perspectives. Yeah. There was sort of this, this hiding of that. And honestly, it like, it really didn't, <sighs> come about that I was like, no, like I'm like, I'm native and I sing jazz and that's cool. And if like, if I am not your mental picture of what a Native American musician is, that sounds like a you problem (laughs) (laughs) that didn't come about until until much later, unfortunately, when I started diving into the music of Mildred Bailey. That was later in high school that like, oh, no, see, like indigenous people have been a huge part of the evolution of jazz. So Mildred Bailey was the first woman to sing in front of a big band in the late 1920s, early 1930s. And she was indigenous. She was of Coeur descent. And the Coeur tribe is in my sort of tribe's region of the Pacific Northwest, inland Northwest. And, you know, it wasn't until that I really that I stumbled across her much by accident that it was sort of like, oh, OK, so I... I can be native and a jazz singer. I can be native and a jazz musician. And then from the Mildred Bailey discovery for me and my personal growth then came, oh, Oscar Pettiford was also indigenous and Jim Pepper was a huge indigenous jazz musician of the 60s, 70s and 80s. And so being able to see that there is a history within this all-American art form of Indigenous people and and how they had such a profound effect on the evolution of this art form really gave me the confidence to exist as myself uh, with my, my cultural identity, creating compositions that infused some of, you know, the traditional melodies or thematic concepts. I mean, we have a place in this music not only historically, but at present and very much well into the future. We have a place here and we are important voices within the genre.
9: Do you feel like things have kind of evolved or changed from the time where you felt like you needed to hide your identity or when other people didn't receive it? Do you feel like there's a wider group of people who don't see such hard lines?
10: I think so. I think... I think yes and no. So, you know, I have still, especially in educational settings, I feel I've been more challenged by spectators or other educators, you know, I still get that question of what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Very accusatory tone, what do you mean by that? But I think within, especially within the arts community and within the community of arts lovers, which is of course, I think a much bigger community, I think there has been more space created. I mean, I think a huge contributing factor to that has just been, you know, the Indigenous presence in pop culture, you know, Taika Waititi's films and being part of the Marvel Universe, Sterling Harjo's Reservation Dogs, Rutherford Falls. I mean, there is such a concerted effort within Indigenous communities across the board to sort of very much contemporize us of sort of like, Hey, like, we're not historical figures. We're not caricatures from, you know, films of the fifties and sixties. Like we are here and we take up our space and we have very valid stories to tell. And honestly, the people who should be telling our stories is us. And so I think there, there has been a shift in that way. I think there is there's definitely more space within this culture that we have now for us to exist and to tell our stories and to express ourselves through our art. Outside of that box, we're allowed to be classical musicians. Yeah, I mean, Raven Chacon winning the Pulitzer Prize like that was huge. And Raven's music is completely experimental chamber music. And, you know, what a beautiful way to. To sort of bring that indigenous, you know, Native American musician stereotype or pigeonholed concept idea to like flip it on its head.
0: And that was Native American jazz singer Julia Keefe talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Keefe will be performing at the Kahilo Theater on Hawaii Island. Saturday night. We'll have a link to tickets on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. And that's it for us today. Up tomorrow, it's a -a hanaho of interviews with local book authors. And be sure to tune in next week. We have Sleep Week. We'll be airing a series of stories on sleep. Do college kids get enough? How does it affect your immunity? How about you? Are you getting enough sleep? We would love to hear your stories. Uh, Call our Talk Back line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you can connect with us on Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.